The Life of Castruccio Castracani of Luca, written by Niccolo Machiavelli, translated by William K. Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Part One and sent to his friends Zanobi, Buon del Monte, and Luigi Alamanni. Castruccio Castracani, 1284-1328 It appears, dearest Zanobi and Luigi, a wonderful thing to those who have considered the matter, that all men, or the larger number of them, who have performed great deeds in the world, and excelled all others in their day, have had their birth and beginning in baseness and obscurity, or have been aggrieved by fortune in some outrageous way. They have either been exposed to the mercy of wild beasts, or they have had so mean a parentage that in shame they have given themselves out to be sons of Jove or of some other deity. It would be wearisome to relate who these persons may have been, because they are well known to everybody, and as such tales would not be particularly edifying to those who read them, they are omitted. I believe that these lowly beginnings of great men occur because fortune is desirous of showing to the world that such men owe much to her and little to wisdom, because she begins to show her hand when wisdom can really take no part in their career. Thus all success must be attributed to her. Castruccio Castracani of Luca was one of those men who did great deeds, if he is measured by the times in which he lived and the city in which he was born, but, like many others, he was neither fortunate nor distinguished in his birth, as the course of this history will show. It appeared to be desirable to recall his memory, because I have discerned in him such indications of valour and fortune as should make him a great exemplar to men. I think also that I ought to call your attention to his actions, because you, of all men I know, delight most in noble deeds. The family of Castracani was formerly numbered among the noble families of Luca, but in the days of which I speak it had somewhat fallen in estate, as so often happens in this world. To this family was born a son Antonio, who became a priest of the order of San Michele of Luca, and for this reason was honoured with the title of Messer Antonio. He had an only sister, who had been married to Buona Corso, Cenami, but Buona Corso dying she became a widow, and not wishing to marry again went to live with her brother. Messer Antonio had a vineyard behind the house where he resided, and as it was bounded on all sides by gardens, any person could have access to it without difficulty. One morning, shortly after sunrise, Madonna Dianora, as the sister of Messer Antonio was called, had occasion to go into the vineyard as usual to gather herbs for seasoning the dinner, and hearing a slight rustling among the leaves of a vine, she turned her eyes in that direction, and heard something resembling the cry of an infant. Whereupon she went towards it, and saw the hands and face of a baby, who was lying enveloped in the leaves, and who seemed to be crying for its mother. 
Partly wondering, and partly fearing, yet full of compassion, she lifted it up and carried it to the house, where she washed it and clothed it with clean linen as is customary, and showed it to Messer Antonio when he returned home. When he heard what had happened, and saw the child, he was not less surprised or compassionate than his sister. They discussed between themselves what should be done, and seeing that he was priest, and that she had no children, they finally determined to bring it up. They had a nurse for it, and it was reared and loved as if it were their own child. They baptized it, and gave it the name of Castruccio, after their father. As the years passed, Castruccio grew very handsome, and gave evidence of wit and discretion, and learnt with a quickness beyond his years those lessons which Messer Antonio imparted to him. Messer Antonio intended to make a priest of him, and in time would have inducted him into his canonry and other benefices, and all his instruction was given with this object. But Antonio discovered that the character of Castruccio was quite unfitted for the priesthood. As soon as Castruccio reached the age of fourteen, he began to take less notice of the chiding of Messer Antonio and Madonna Dianora, and no longer to fear them. He left off reading ecclesiastical books, and turned to playing with arms, delighting in nothing so much as in learning their uses, and in running, leaping, and wrestling with other boys. In all exercises he far excelled his companions in courage and bodily strength, and if at any time he did turn to books, only those pleased him which told of wars and the mighty deeds of men. Messer Antonio beheld all this with vexation and sorrow. There lived in the city of Lucca a gentleman of the Guinigi family named Messer Francesco whose profession was arms, and who, in riches, bodily strength, and valour, excelled all other men in Lucca. He had often fought under the command of the Visconti of Milan, and as a Ghibelline was the valued leader of that party in Lucca. This gentleman resided in Lucca, and was accustomed to assemble with others most mornings and evenings under the balcony of the Podesta, which is at the top of the square of San Michele, the finest square in Lucca, and he had often seen Castruccio taking part with other children of the street in those games of which I have spoken. Noticing that Castruccio far excelled the other boys, and that he appeared to exercise a royal authority over them, and that they loved and obeyed him, Messer Francesco became greatly desirous of learning who he was. Being informed of the circumstances of the bringing up of Castruccio, he felt a greater desire to have him near to him. Therefore he called one day, and asked him whether he would more willingly live in the house of a gentleman, where he would learn to ride horses and use arms, or in the house of a priest, where he would learn nothing but masses and the services of the church. Messer Francesco could see that it pleased Castruccio greatly to hear horses and arms spoken of, even though he stood silent, blushing modestly. But being encouraged by Messer Francesco to speak, he answered that, if his master were agreeable, nothing would please him more than to give up his priestly studies and take up those of a soldier. 
This reply delighted Messer Francesco, and in a very short time he obtained the consent of Messer Antonio, who was driven to yield by his knowledge of the nature of the lad, and the fear that he would not be able to hold him much longer. Thus Castruccio passed from the house of Messer Antonio the priest to the house of Messer Francesco Guinigi the soldier, and it was astonishing to find that in a very short time he manifested all that virtue and bearing which we are accustomed to associate with a true gentleman. In the first place he became an accomplished horseman, and could manage with ease the most fiery charger, and in all jousts and tournaments, although still a youth, he was observed beyond all others, and he excelled in all exercises of strength and dexterity. But what enhanced so much the charm of these accomplishments was the delightful modesty which enabled him to avoid offence in either act or word to others, for he was deferential to the great men, modest with his equals, and courteous to his inferiors. These gifts made him beloved, not only by all the Guinigi family, but by all Luca. When Castruccio had reached his eighteenth year, the Ghibellines were driven from Pavia by the Guelphs, and Messer Francesco was sent by the Visconti to assist the Ghibellines, and with him went Castruccio in charge of his forces. Castruccio gave ample proof of his prudence and courage in this expedition, acquiring greater reputation than any other captain, and his name and fame were known not only in Pavia but throughout all Lombardy. Castruccio, having returned to Lucca in far higher estimation than he left it, did not omit to use all the means in his power to gain as many friends as he could neglecting none of those arts which are necessary for that purpose about this time messer francesco died leaving a son thirteen years of age named pagolo and having appointed castruccio to be his son's tutor and administrator of his estate before he died francesco called castruccio to him and prayed him to show pagolo that good will which he francesco had always shown to him and to render to the son the gratitude which he had not been able to repay to the father upon the death of francesco castruccio became the governor and tutor of pagolo which increased enormously his power and position and created a certain amount of envy against him in lucca in place of the former universal goodwill for many men suspected him of harbouring tyrannical intentions among these the leading man was giorgio degli Opisi, the head of the guelph party this man hoped after the death of messer francesco to become the chief man in lucca but it seemed to him that castruccio with the great abilities which he already showed and holding the position of governor deprived him of his opportunity therefore he began to sow those seeds which should rob castruccio of his eminence Castruccio at first treated this with scorn, but afterwards he grew alarmed, thinking that Messer Giorgio might be able to bring him into disgrace with the deputy of King Roberto of Naples and have him driven out of Lucca. The lord of Pisa at that time was Ugaccioni of the Fagiula of Arezzo, who, being in the first place elected their captain, afterwards became their lord 
there resided in Paris some exiled Ghibellines from Lucca, with whom Catruccio held communications, with the object of effecting their restoration by the help of Ugaccioni. Castruccio also brought into his plans friends from Lucca who would not endure the authority of the Opici. Having fixed upon a plan to be followed, Castruccio cautiously fortified the tower of the Onesti, filling it with supplies and musicians of war, in order that it might stand a siege for a few days in case of need. When the night came, which had been agreed upon with Ugaccioni, who had occupied the plain between the mountains and Pisa with many men, the signal was given, and without being observed, Ugaccioni approached the gate of San Piero and set fire to the portcullis. Castruccio raised a great uproar within the city, calling the people to arms and forcing open the gate from his side. Ugaccioni entered with his men, poured through the town, and killed Messer Giorgio with all his family and many of his friends and supporters. The governor was driven out, and the government reformed, according to the wishes of Ugaccioni, to the detriment of the city, because it was found that more than one hundred families were exiled at that time. Of those who fled, part went to Florence, and part to Pistoia, which city was the headquarters of the Guelph party, and for this reason it became most hostile to Ugazione and the Lucchesi. As it now appeared to the Florentines and others of the Guelph party that the Ghibellines absorbed too much power in Tuscany, they determined to restore the exiled Guelphs to Lucca. They assembled a large army in the Val di Nievole and seized Montecatini. From thence they marched to Monte Carlo in order to secure the free passage into Lucca. Upon this, Ugaccioni assembled his Pisan and Lucchesi forces, and with a number of German cavalry which he drew out of Lombardy, he moved against the quarters of the Florentines, who, upon the appearance of the enemy, withdrew from Monte Carlo and posted themselves between Monte Catini and Pescia. Ugaccioni now took up a position near to Monte Carlo, and within about two miles of the enemy, and slight skirmishes between the horse of both parties were of daily occurrence. Owing to the illness of Ugaccioni, the Pisans and Lucchesi delayed coming to battle with the enemy. Ugaccioni, finding himself growing worse, went to Monte Carlo to be cured, and left the command of the army in the hands of Castruccio. This change brought about the ruin of the Guelphs, who, thinking that a hostile army having lost its captain had lost its head, grew overconfident. Castruccio observed this, and allowing some days to pass in order to encourage this belief, he also showed signs of fear, and did not allow any of the munitions of the camp to be used. On the other side, the Guelphs grew more insolent the more they saw these evidences of fear, and every day they drew out in the order of battle in front of the army of Castruccio. Presently, deeming that the enemy was sufficiently emboldened, and having mastered their tactics, he decided to join battle with them. First he spoke a few words of encouragement to his soldiers, and pointed out to them the certainty of victory if they would but obey his commands. 
Castruccio had noticed how the enemy had placed all his best troops in the centre of the line of battle, and his less reliable men on the wings of the army, whereupon he did exactly the opposite, putting his most valiant men on the flanks, while those on whom he could not so strongly rely he moved to the centre. Observing this order of battle, he drew out of his lines and quickly came in sight of the hostile army, who, as usual, had come in their insolence to defy him. He then commanded his centre squadrons to march slowly, whilst he moved rapidly forward those on the wings. Thus, when they came into contact with the enemy, only the wings of the two armies became engaged, while the centre battalions remained out of action, for these two portions of the line of battle were separated from each other by a long interval, and thus unable to reach each other. By this expedient the more valiant part of Castruccio's men were opposed to the weaker part of the enemy's troops, and the most efficient men of the enemy were disengaged, and thus the Florentines were unable to fight with those who were arrayed opposite to them, or to give any assistance to their own flanks. So, without much difficulty, Castruccio put the enemy to flight on both flanks, and the centre battalions took to flight when they found themselves exposed to attack without having a chance of displaying their valour. The defeat was complete, and the loss in men very heavy, there being more than ten thousand men killed, with many officers and knights of the Guelph party in Tuscany, and also many princes who had come to help them, among whom were Piero, the brother of King Ruberto, and Carlo, his nephew, and Filippo, the lord of Taranto on the part of castruccio the loss did not amount to more than three hundred men among whom was francesco the son of ugaccioni who being young and rash was killed in the first onset this victory so greatly increased the reputation of castruccio that ugaccioni conceived some jealousy and suspicion of him because it appeared to Agaccioni that this victory had given him no increase of power, but rather diminished it. Because of this mind he only waited for an opportunity to give effect to it. This occurred on the death of Pier Agnolo Micelli, a man of great repute and abilities in Lucca, the murderer of whom fled to the house of Castruccio for refuge. On the sergeants of the captain going to arrest the murderer, they were driven off by Castruccio, and the murderer escaped. This affair coming to the knowledge of Guccione, who was then at Pizza, it appeared to him a proper opportunity to punish Castruccio. He therefore sent for his son Neri, who was the governor of Lucca, and commissioned him to take Castruccio prisoner at a banquet and put him to death. Castruccio, fearing no evil, went to the governor in a friendly way, was entertained at supper, and then thrown into prison. But Neri, fearing to put him to death lest the people should be incensed, kept him alive, in order to hear further from his father concerning his intentions. Ugaccioni cursed the hesitation and cowardice of his son, and at once set out from Pisa to Lucca with four hundred horsemen to finish the business in his own way. But he had not yet reached the baths when the Pisans rebelled and put his deputy to death and created Count Gaddo della Gherardesca their lord. 
Before Ugaccioni reached Lucca, he heard of the occurrences at Pisa, but it did not appear wise to him to turn back, lest the Lucchesi, with the example of Pisa before them, should close their gates against him. But the Lucchesi, having heard of what happened at Pisa, availed themselves of this opportunity to demand the liberation of Castruccio, notwithstanding that Ugaccioni had arrived in their city. They first began to speak of it in private circles, afterwards openly in the squares and streets. Then they raised a tumult, and with arms in their hands, went to Ugaccioni and demanded that Castruccio should be set at liberty. Ugaccioni, fearing that worse might happen, released him from prison, whereupon Castruccio gathered his friends around him, and with the help of the people attacked Ugaccioni, who, finding he had no resource but in flight, rode away with his friends to Lombardy, to the lords of Scala, where he died in poverty. But Castruccio, from being a prisoner, became almost a prince in Lucca, and he carried himself so discreetly with his friends and the people that they appointed him captain of their army for one year. Having obtained this, and wishing to gain renown in war, he planned the recovery of the many towns which had rebelled after the departure of Ugaccioni, and with the help of the Pisans, with whom he had concluded a treaty, he marched to Serezzana. To capture this place, he constructed a fort against it, which is called today Zerezzanello. In the course of two months, Castruccio captured the town. With the reputation gained at that siege, he rapidly seized Massa, Carrara, and Levenza, and in short time had overrun the whole of Lunigiana. In order to close the pass which leads from Lombardy to Lunigiana, he besieged Pontremoli and wrested it from the hands of Messer Anastasio Pallavicini, who was the lord of it. After this victory he returned to Lucca and was welcomed by the whole people. And now Castruccio, deeming it imprudent any longer to defer making himself a prince, got himself created the Lord of Lucca by the help of Pazzino del Poggio, Puccinello dal Portico, Francesco Boccansacci, and Cecco Guinigi, all of whom he had corrupted, and he was afterwards solemnly and deliberately elected prince by the people. At this time Frederick of Bavaria, the king of the Romans, came into Italy to assume the imperial crown, and Castruccio, in order that he might make friends with him, met him at the head of five hundred horsemen. Castruccio had left as his deputy in Lucca Pagolo Guinigi, who was held in high estimation because of the people's love for the memory of his father. Castruccio was received in great honour by Frederick, and many privileges were conferred upon him, and he was appointed the Emperor's lieutenant in Tuscany. At this time the Pisans were in great fear of Garo della Garadesca, whom they had driven out of Pisa, and they had recourse for assistance to Frederick. Frederick created Castruccio the Lord of Pisa, and the Pisans, in dread of the Guelph party, and particularly of the Florentines, were constrained to accept him as their lord. Frederick, having appointed a governor in Rome to watch his Italian affairs, returned to Germany, 
All the Tuscan and Lombardian Ghibellines, who followed the imperial lead, had recourse to Castruccio for help and counsel, and all promised him the governorship of his country, if enabled to recover it with his assistance. Among these exiles were Matteo Guidi, Nardo Scolari, Lapo Uberti, Gerozzo Nardi, and Piero Buenacorsi, all exiled Florentines and Ghibellines. Castruccio had the secret intention of becoming the master of all Tuscany by the aid of these men and of his own forces, and in order to gain greater weight in affairs he entered into a league with Messer Matteo Visconti, the Prince of Milan, and organized for him the forces of his city and the country districts. As Luca had five gates, he divided his own country districts into five parts, which he supplied with arms, and enrolled the men under captains and ensigns, so that he could quickly bring into the field twenty thousand soldiers, without those whom he could summon to his assistance from Pisa. While he surrounded himself with these forces and allies, it happened that Messer Matteo Visconti was attacked by the Guelphs of Piacenza, who had driven out the Ghibellines with the assistance of a Florentine army and the King Ruberto. Messer Matteo called upon Castruccio to invade the Florentines in their own territories, so that, being attacked at home, they should be compelled to draw their army out of Lombardy in order to defend themselves. Castruccio invaded the Valdarno, and seized Fucecchio and San Miniato, inflicting immense damage upon the country whereupon the florentines recalled their army which had scarcely reached tuscany when castruccio was forced by other necessities to return to lucca there resided in the city of lucca the poggio family who were so powerful that they could not only elevate castruccio but even advance him to the dignity of prince and it appearing to them they had not received such rewards for their services as they deserved they incited other families to rebel and to drive castruccio out of lucca they found their opportunity one morning and arming themselves they set upon the lieutenant whom castruccio had left to maintain order and killed him they endeavoured to raise the people in revolt but stefano di poggio a peaceable old man who had taken no hand in the rebellion intervened and compelled them by his authority to lay down their arms and he offered to be their mediator with castruccio to obtain from him what they desired therefore they laid down their arms with no greater intelligence than they had taken them up castruccio having heard the news of what had happened at lucca at once put pagolo guinigi in command of the army and with a troop of cavalry set out for home contrary to his expectations he found the rebellion at an end yet he posted his men in the most advantageous places throughout the city as it appeared to stefano that castruccio ought to be very much obliged to him he sought him out and without saying anything on his own behalf for he did not recognize any need for doing so he begged castruccio to pardon the other members of his family by reason of their youth their former friendships and the obligations which castruccio was under to their house 
To this Castruccio graciously responded, and begged Stefano to reassure himself, declaring that it gave him more pleasure to find the tumult at an end than it had ever caused him anxiety to hear of its inception. He encouraged Stefano to bring his family to him, saying that he thanked God for having given him the opportunity of showing his clemency and liberality. Upon the word of Stefano and Castruccio they surrendered, and with Stefano were immediately thrown into prison and put to death. Meanwhile the Florentines had recovered San Miniato, whereupon it seemed advisable to Castruccio to make peace, as it did not appear to him that he was sufficiently secure at Lucca to leave him. He approached the Florentines with the proposal of a truce, which they readily entertained, for they were weary of the war, and desirous of getting rid of the expenses of it. A treaty was concluded with them for two years, by which both parties agreed to keep the conquest they had made. Castruccio, thus released from this trouble, turned his attention to affairs in Lucca, and in order that he should not again be subject to the perils from which he had just escaped, he, under various pretenses and reasons, first wiped out all those who by their ambition might aspire to the principality, not sparing one of them, but depriving them of country and property, and those whom he had in his hands of life also stating that he had found by experience that none of them were to be trusted then for his further security he raised a fortress in lucca with the stones of the towers of those whom he had killed or hunted out of the state whilst castruccio made peace with the florentines and strengthened his position in lucca he neglected no opportunity short of open war of increasing his importance elsewhere it appeared to him that if he could get possession of pistoia he would have one foot in florence which was his great desire he therefore in various ways made friends with the mountaineers and worked matters so in pistoia that both parties confided their secrets to him pistoia was divided as it always had been into the bianchi and neri parties the head of the bianchi was bastiano di Pacente, and of the neri jacopo da gia each of these men held secret communications with castruccio and each desired to drive the other out of the city and after many threatenings they came to blows jacopo fortified himself at the florentine gate bastiano at that of the lucchese side of the city both trusted more in castruccio than in the florentines because they believed that castruccio was far more ready and willing to fight than the florentines and they both sent to him for assistance he gave promises to both saying to bastiano that he would come in person and to jacopo that he would send his pupil pagolo guinigi at the appointed time he sent forward pagolo by way of pisa and went himself direct to pistoia at midnight both of them met outside the city and both were admitted as friends thus the two leaders entered and at a signal given by castruccio one killed jacopo da gia and the other bastiano di Pacenti, and both took prisoners or killed the partisans of either faction 
Without further opposition, Pistoia passed into the hands of Castruccio, who, having forced the Signora to leave the palace, compelled the people to yield obedience to him, making them many promises and remitting their old debts. The countryside flocked to the city to see the new prince, and all were filled with hope and quickly settled down, influenced in a great measure by his great valour. End of the Life of Castruccio Castracani of Luca, Part 1 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com